this is James Rudd reporting for Heart Journal from the 2015 European Society of Cardiology meeting here in London and I'm delighted to be joined today by Professor Steve Nichols from Adelaide who is joining us here to discuss a couple of aspects. One is going to be the lipid landscape in 2015 and where we're heading with the next generation of therapies. And then we're also going to dive into imaging and imaging as a surrogate marker of disease. So thanks very much indeed for joining me today, Steve. Could you just tell us your current title? I know you've moved around recently. So I'm Deputy Director of the South Australian Health and Medical Research Institute, which is a new research institute in Adelaide that covers a range of areas. And so I run the cardiovascular research program there, and I'm a consultant cardiologist at the Royal Adelaide Hospital. And most recently you were working at the Cleveland Clinic, is that right, for several years with Professor Nissen? Yeah, so I went to the Cleveland Clinic for a postdoc in 2004 and eventually went on to staff there, so I stayed there for about eight years and that was a fascinating time that really enabled me to expand my translational research program in in atherosclerosis. And your background, I understand your your PhD and postdoc research was in HDL biology, lipid biology, and that... I guess that gels very nicely with what you're doing at the moment in terms of CTP inhibitor work, PCSK9 trials. Could you just give us your view? Recently, we've had two of the new PCSK9 agents approved by the FDA. I mean, do you have a gut feeling of how these things are going to pan out and what kind of patient groups we're going to be able to use them in? And perhaps if you could segue maybe into the CTP inhibitor story. I know you're involved with the torcetrapib trials and ongoing studies of a couple of those agents. So, I mean, the PCSK9 story is a a really elegant story that really spans, you know, the molecular biology and genetics, and and now we have these monoclonal antibodies, and and, and they'll soon be in clinical practice with with agents that are now approved. And it's just unbelievable what these agents do. They lower LDL cholesterol 50 to 70%, either as monotherapy or on top of a statin. That really opens up a whole range of opportunities. You know, obviously, I think we'd see in its first instance clinical use probably in the much higher risk patients. So patients who have established disease that we really can't get anywhere near the kinds of goals that we want to get. So, you know, patients with familial hypercholesterolemia, statin intolerance, uh, people with multiple risk factors who we can't just just even with statin therapy, you can't get anywhere near where we want to be. I suspect that's probably where they will start. And then the question will be how much it expands out after that. There are multiple big outcome studies that are currently underway, and we'll have those results in the next two years. And I think if the outcome findings are anywhere near what the kind of suggestion from some very early reports in the New England earlier this year uh, implied, I I think it'll be a, a very tantalizing approach for a much broader range of patients. Now, you know, every every agent comes along with some pluses and minuses, and you've got the issues of injectables, which I don't think are going to be that big a deal, but uh, but these are expensive biologics to make, and so they will come along with a considerable cost, and so I think it'll be, you know, the health economics there will be interesting to see how that plays out. It's, you know, you mentioned imaging earlier on in, in parallel you know, we're doing an IVUS trial. It'll be the next chapter in the story of will really intensively lowering LDL and taking it to a much lower level than we've seen before. Will that result in even more regression? In fact, and so we'll actually see the results of the IVUS trial before we'll see the outcome study. So right? we're really excited about that. So the cost of these agents, the top line cost is around 15,000 US dollars per year, but 
perhaps with competition, at least two on the market already, more coming down the pipeline than maybe it may be cheaper, you think? Well, I, I think ultimately the payer will have the say in all yeah. of this. And the price is what it is. Uh, what the payers ultimately pay may be something very different. And, yeah. you know, again, I think that that may be an interesting conversation to have depending on what the outcome data shows. Like if you have you know, 30 40% reduction of events and you have a 20% reduction in all-cause mortality... It's going to be hard a, to ignore that data, isn't it? It's really going to be really hard to ignore that data. So I think the, how robust the outcome data will be will probably be the final kind of story there. And, and there will be other PCSK9 inhibitors that come to the market as well. So there won't just be two. So I, I think market forces will dictate there. And they, they seem to be very well tolerated. So they though. appear to be extraordinarily well tolerated. No major problems with injection site reactions or anything like that. Yeah. You know, there's always been this theoretical kind of issue is, is there an LDL that's too low to go to? Certainly the post hoc analyses of the big statin trials, the azetamide trials, hasn't shown any safety signal getting down to low levels, but you're going to end up with a lot of people at low levels, so we're going to learn a lot. There's been maybe one or two signals in these programs to suggest there might be some more neurocognitive adverse events, but it's been a really crude measure, just right. really asking people. So I think, again, the jury's probably still out on that. I think these are going to be very safe and highly effective drugs, and I think there'll be a lot of us awaiting to kind of get our hands on them yeah. in clinical yeah. practice. And then that, that then kind of looks to the other chapter here, which, as you said, is the CTP inhibitors. And, and, and that's it's a story which has really had a checkered history. You know, we had a, a lot of excitement with torcetrapib, and then that was associated with adverse effects, both on CV and non-cardiovascular outcomes. We did some imaging studies back then that showed that it really didn't do anything at all. But then when you went kind of teased into the data, you could actually identify patients who appeared to regress and, and suggesting that maybe concept of CTP inhibition, if you got the HDL high enough, actually was going to work. And, and we actually learned that torcetrapib had a bunch, bunch of problems related to the molecule. So then we went on to the next phase of this. And unfortunately, my, you know, I've, I've been involved in many of these. So the next instalment was dalcetrapib, which was a much more modest inhibitor. You know, 30% increase in HDL, no effect on LDL and, and futility in terms of a big endpoint trial. Yes. Uh, interestingly, recently, some observations suggesting that some pharmacogenomics may identify a polymorphism that benefited. And, and in fact, a, a really interesting trial that's just starting now where those patients will be exclusively enrolled in that, which, which is kind of intriguing to do a study like that, which is kind of interesting and just gives maybe a little bit of a glimpse into what the future of clinical trials may be. And then two yeah, others. You've got, you've got anisetropib and evocetropib, which are both potent CTP inhibitors with none of these torcetropib-like off-target toxicities. I'm one of the global PIs of the evocetropib outcome right. trial, and we have a fully enrolled trial that passed its futility analysis within the last couple of months and you know, full steam ahead. So hopefully we've got a result for that study sometime later next year. And we, we know that this is not the CETP inhibitor. Drugs as a class are not really a test of the, the HDL hypothesis has been reiterated many times. They, yeah, they're exactly right. In fact, I, I think that the only real pure test of the HDL hypothesis to date have been the infusional drugs. And, you know, we've seen in our hands and hands of others that, you know, infusing HDL in humans with ACS promotes rapid regression. And we're just at the moment putting some studies together which are looking at kind of new formulations of, of some of these HDL infusions. And that, that is a true HDL in kind of hypothesis tester. But ultimately, we need to see those move to an outcome study before we really ultimately know. It's, in the end of the day, it's going, to, it's going to be about events. That's good. And just finally, in terms of the, the world of imaging, both invasive and non-invasive imaging, do you think the pharma companies are still keen on surrogate measures? Have they had their fingers burned with some of the 
imaging trials we've seen so far, which have got different results to the outcome studies. Do you just give us a, a broad overview of where you see the, the landscape? Oh, look, I think in the end of the day, there is a lot of interest in evaluating what an agent does to the biology that causes the event. And so Clark and provided we use the right tools for doing that. So we've focused a lot on measures of burden, um, and we know that correlates with outcome, and so that's actually worked pretty well. I think that the field has benefited from moving away from a IMT focus to yeah. one of really looking at Clark itself. And so I, we've seen some agents where development's progressed because we've seen a favourable effect, and we've seen other programs where they've shut programs down because, you know, the agents have had either no effect or, in fact, potentially adverse effects on Clark Burden. The question is, how do we move it forward in two different ways? One, can we do these non-invasively? And I think we'd all prefer to do that. It expands the patient cohorts you can do right. these studies in. Right. It gives you potentially multiple looks. Yep. With the invasive, you really are restricted to two looks. And so I think there's been a lot of interest in how MR and CT have both evolved. And that's been an interesting kind of space. And I, and I think there will be more and more activity. I like where CT is going. And you know, I think as the resolution continues to improve and the yeah. standardization of the approach across sites and multi-center studies yeah. are always a lot harder as you know to do than than when you've got complete control in your own hospital um, yeah so I, I think that's a space that I think there's a lot of enthusiasm and then the other element here is can we look at more than just how much plaque there is so I think we've kind of been a little disappointed when we've looked at Attempts to look at the composition, things like virtual histology right. and things like that, I, I think have, have not really provided the tool we've been looking for. Near-infrared may from a lipid perspective, but again, we've not seen that evolve. And, and then a, an area of interest that you've spent a lot of time in and we, we share some interest in is this concept of molecular imaging. And right. I mean, ultimately, it's how a plaque behaves that is ultimately important. So if you can use really reliable measures of plaque activity and show that you favourably modify that, then that would be a great step. I mean, the FDG field has seen a lot of studies and it's been hard to really read. We're, we're always searching for new agents, particularly in the coronary arteries where I think FDG yeah. really struggles. So. I think so. And I, I mean, we've certainly watched with interest the developments in sodium fluoride and it certainly is, is better for the coronaries right. and may represent one of these things. And then above and beyond that, then you get into much more specific molecular targeted right. and right. that's that's a field in evolution. So I, you know, I think that the I think the field's got a lot to offer, and I think industry are continuing to show interest. I mean, some are more interested than others, right. and, and that's always been the case, but these things will never replace outcome studies, and I think that, you know, if you go back to the torsetropib days, maybe there was a sense by some individuals that that was going to be the case, but I, and that was never really going to be the case, and so I think it, it provides a really important tool that can help in the early development yeah, of therapies before you subject them to massive trials that cost a lot of money, so I, I think there's still a lot of room to play in this field. Excellent. Well, thank you very much indeed, uh, Steve, for your time today. It's great to catch up with you, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you.